page 559. As you turn there, we have two more weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so um, because of that, uh, this week and next week's sermons will kind of be a part one and part two. And it's my attempt to try to land this plane. Uh, we've been talking about a lot of things. Some of those things have been really, really hard. But what is it ultimately that the wisdom of Ecclesiastes wants to do to us? Or who, do we, who should we be? And uh, that's what I'm sort of after uh, this morning and next week as well. And I find it incredibly appropriate. And no, this sermon wasn't designed around Thanksgiving, although it is about what it means to be givers. Um, but I find it incredibly appropriate that we will have this service and next service uh, surrounding the holiday of Thanksgiving. So something for us to continue to think about. For our reading this morning, I'm only going to be reading verses 1 to 6 in chapter 11. And then I'm going to go back to chapter 12, or not go back, but go down to chapter 12 and read for us again sort of Solomon's summary statement, uh, his conclusion there in verse 13. So let us give the reading, or, or, or attention, excuse me, to the reading of God's word found in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones, comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything In the morning. sow your seed and at evening withhold not your hand for you do not know which will prosper this or that or whether both alike will be good. Move down to verse 13 of chapter 12. The end of the matter. All has been heard from all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let me pray for us. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We pray now, as we often do, that you would do a miracle. And by a miracle, that you would soften hardened hearts. Calm us. Uh, give us your spirit. Give us your grace. Uh, teach us this morning. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. <clears throat> Derek Kinder offers in, in such a concise way a summary of where we've been in chapter 12, coming out of chapter 9 and chapter 12 and where we're going. And instead of me trying to give you some type of uh, illustration to, to get us into our text this morning, I'm going to offer his own words to us. He says, if we have looked at chapter 10 as we come out of it in chapter 11, the advice summed up there is to be sensible. Caution had its place there. Now it must give way to enterprise. If there are risks to everything, it is better to fail launching out than in hugging one's resources to oneself. And where we're beginning both today and next week is this, is that we are well aware of the uncertainty of life. We're well aware of how unpredictable life is. Things happen. And where we begin to look at that and we begin to say those are reasons or excuses to huddle in, right? To, to be paralyzed, so to speak, um, 
to be afraid to go out into this world, both in living, but also in loving others of giving ourselves away, if you will, what the Bible is asking of us and what Solomon is pushing us towards is that it's no, it's the opposite because of life's unpredictability, because of its uncertainty, this should actually launch us into this world and it should launch us into loving others. And we, we understand that more fully now than Solomon did because we have the full picture of scripture. What allows us to do that, what allows us to even say that this morning is because of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who has given himself for us. And if, and if he has given himself for us, what do we have to lose? That is where this wisdom is shaping us and where it is sending us. And that is my goal as we land this plane, so to speak, this week and next. But for this morning, to get there, uh, there's a little work that we need to do beforehand. I want to look at this text, but I also want to look at it broadly in uh, the, the, the full scope of, of where the wisdom of Ecclesiastes is sending us. And so you'll see on your handout, I want to look at what's easy about the text. I want to look at what's difficult then about the text for us and then how the text wants to shape us. Okay, so what's easy about it, what's difficult about it and how the text wants to shape us. So first, what's easy in the text? This text starts out with three things that we do not know in this life. Let me say this first. Chapter 11, verse 1, begins with these Proverbs, and these Proverbs are challenging. So put, put, put the challenging part aside. What I want to start with is what is easy about it, and that is it, what, what, what the text shows us is what we don't know about life. And there are three things, and none of us are going to disagree with this. The text is saying that we don't know the future. Right? We cannot predict when disaster might strike, when death might come. We just don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. Huge theme throughout the book. We don't know what promises success. We don't know what will grow. We don't know what will fail. There's no system, no, um, you know, A, B, and C. If you just do these things in life, that'll promise life to work out the way that you want it to. That will promise success in all its forms, whatever that is for you. We don't know what this is. And then lastly, we don't know the works of God or the things that only God knows. We don't know these things. We don't understand these things. Again, huge themes throughout Scripture. So this lends itself to uh, a life that, that is really unpredictable and uncertain for us. And what's easy about this text is agreeing with the fact that I don't know the future, I can't guarantee success, and I don't understand what only God knows and understands. I get that. And the author's point here is that this should ultimately shape us into being people who fear and obey God. In other words, knowing these three things should actually free us to start living a certain way. And that is to be givers in and of life, not takers or keepers of life. Or as Kidner said earlier, risk and unpredictability under God's watch should actually send us launching into life, not being paralyzed by it. We get it. And as we start throughout this text, we see just in the simple commands of it, look at the, uh, the verses, if you will, there. You see, cast your bread, which we're going to talk about here in a second. Give a portion, right? Look at the commands. Sow your seed. Withhold not your hand. All commands that have at its core the posture of generosity, of sitting loose, if you will, to life and life's possessions. Now, just to kind of hopefully try to solve some of your curiosity, there is confusion about what Solomon is talking about. Is he talking about a generosity of life in general? Or is he actually talking about industry? And there's a lot of... Um, 
you know, there's a lot of opinions about this when you look at these Proverbs. And, you know, to cast your bread upon the sea could easily have in view enterprise and entrepreneurship. Giving to seven and then eight is also understood in terms of diversity, right? It's one of the places we get the phrase, don't put all your eggs in one basket. <clears throat> but I am not Dave Ramsey. I'm not here to tell you how to handle your finances. Um, what I want to say is that whether it's philanthropy or industry, the one thing is certain, and this is more important for where we're going to finish this book, is that life is about living. L-I-V-I-N. Living. Go and give. Go after life regardless of its uncertainty. Take life as it comes. Nature will not ask for your permission if it's okay to rain or for the trees to fall. It does it anyway. If you wait for life's conditions to be perfect, you will be waiting your entire life. This is the wisdom as we enter chapter 11. So don't just sow in the morning, but withhold uh, not your hand in the evening because you don't know what will work. You don't know what will come out in the end. You don't know the future. You can't predict what will succeed or fail. You don't know what only God knows, which is almost everything. So go and live. Try a lot of things. Trust that he is good. But this ultimately scares us because there is risk in this world and we get that. There is uncertainty. But as we've said, the risk that life presents and uncertainty to Christians is not meant to paralyze us or cause us to huddle in fear. It's meant to send us out generously. As one commentary puts it, some say life is uncertain, so we should eat our dessert first. But Solomon is saying life is uncertain, so give your dessert away. Or as another says, we should learn to sit loose with our possessions. And I like that phrase. To sit loose with our possessions, with our lives. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 12 that some of you might be familiar with. But a man who has much success with his crops. So much success that he has no place to store his grain. And so instead of thinking about sitting loose with that possession, if you will. He tears down his barns and he builds bigger ones. He builds bigger ones to store all this grain. And it's really a picture of control of the future. See, back then in the agrarian culture, famine could come in and you just wouldn't know when the next time your crops would be able to grow. And which is ultimately um, uh, an indication of whether life would be successful or not for you. But if we could store it up, if I could hold on to it, I could know that I would be fine. I, would, I could know that things would go well for me. But how does the parable end? God says to him, fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Gibson says this, Ecclesiastes-type wisdom, Christ-like wisdom, grows believers who spend their life on living in the world rather than on living in the world so as not to die. That is exactly what Jesus is getting at in that parable. To invest in the things of this world, to invest in his kingdom, is what it is that our lives should be given to. Not storing up life for ourselves here so as not to die. 
So what's easy about this text, though? We don't know the future. We can't promise success. We don't know what only God knows. In other words, life is unpredictable. So live and live generously. Do not hold on to it. Don't be keepers of it. Do not look look to life as it is something to be gained, as we have said also. It is gift. And model the gift giver in giving it away. Be entrepreneurs for the kingdom is another phrase that comes up when you get into this text as well. Be givers of and in life. This is what's easy about the text. Okay, what's difficult about the, about the text? It's our second point. Well, here's what's difficult. Life is unpredictable. It's uncertain. So live generously. <laughs> the same thing that is easy about this text is the exact same thing that is difficult about it. All of it, in other words, is difficult. I am not a natural born giver of life. This scares me to death. But this is what gets to our second point, but it's also what we've got to see in order to move forward into where Solomon would have us go. We are called to see life's unpredictability as a springboard to generosity and full living, but it often isn't. It is often, as Gibson said earlier, we live in this world so as not to die, which sounds pretty normal to me. I'm not going to lie. I think, you know, you, you hear that and you're like, well, I think that's, that's a good thing, right? To live in this world so as not to die. But remember, Solomon is not telling us that it's wrong to avoid getting hit by cars when crossing the street. What Solomon has been telling us is that we are to live life not as gift, but as gain. Something to keep or take in order to insulate ourselves from death. So what makes this text so difficult is that I am a taker, a keeper of life naturally for my own self-preservation. And because that's true, seeing life as gift and giving it away is hard. It's impossible might be a better way to describe it. So I look everywhere to gain something from this world to preserve my life. As, the, as Solomon has said in chapter 7, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. We scheme to live life so as not to die. And we do that because we don't ultimately trust that God is good, right? And that his promises are true. More on that in just a second. There's an article, though, that came out. It's really, it was a forum by Veritas Forum that interviewed two pretty high-profile people in their, in their fields for sure. Peter Thiel, who is one of the most Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, started PayPal as one of the first investors of Facebook, worth over $2 billion dollars. Just $2 billion. And then N.T. Wright, who is uh, one of our, our, one of the church's uh, leading New Testament scholars. And, and the topic was technology, hope, and the end of death. And the discussion was fascinating as they began to talk about where technology is going and what it is that we should be striving for. And in the forum, uh, Peter is sort of setting the bar high, we should say. Um, one, the, the person that wrote the article from the forum said, listening to Peter Thiel speak can remind you of the smallness of your own dreams. And here's what he means. Peter Thiel wants to end death itself. Here's a quote from Peter from the forum. I think the thing that is really incompatible with life is death. And everybody in the crowd laughs. But Peter is not laughing. He is dead serious. He says this, and this is his point. If death is our worst enemy, why do we settle for it? And I'm like watching the forum like, yeah, yeah, why do we settle for it? 
Why do we accept it as something we can't change? And Teal isn't suggesting that one day we'll be offered a pill that will enable us to live forever. What he's saying is, look, one day you're, we're going to have a cure for Alzheimer's. And you're going to be asked, do you want to take this pill to cure you of uh, Alzheimer's disease? And you're going to say yes. And then there's going to be a pill for cancer. And you're going to have cancer. And you're going to be asked, do you want to take this pill for cancer? And you're going to say, yes, I do. I want to live. And before you know it, and this is his prediction, we're going to be able to extend life to three to 400 years. And you're thinking, oh, that's going to be awesome. That's going to be great. Why wouldn't we want to do this? And this is the whole point. Like, why are we settling for this? We could easily be people that could live forever. And then the theologian speaks. Bring some sense into this, I guess. But, you know, you're all sort of hyped up on this. But N.T. Wright gets a chance to respond. And this is what he says. He says, first, he says, I don't have a problem extending life to 100, maybe 120, but three to 400 years, I'm not so sure. And the first reason he gets for that is a biblical one. One, I'm not sure God would allow it. And he's referring to Genesis 3 and the curse because of sin. How sin has entered uh, life through one man. So all must, all must die. Mm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, that, that's his first response. But his second response is actually more convincing. Not, not that the text isn't, but he says, do I really want to go on living with sinful motives? He says, okay, I, he says, this is from the forum, I'll live to be 150, that's fine, but I'll still be a sinner. I'll still be conflicted. I'll still have wrong emotions. Do I really want to go on having all that stuff that much longer? Will that be helpful to the world if I do? And this is where Tom and Peter disagree. But the discussion is fascinating because it shows just how committed we are to living in this world so as not to die, in one sense. But as N.T. Wright is showing us, and what he's pointing out through his answer is that the problem with that is that it's ignoring the fact that death is already in us. Why go on living three to four hundred years with sinful motives? The problem with living forever under the sun in this body, if you will, under these conditions that you were meant for something so much better. You could say that Ecclesiastes is pushing us to this. To live in this world for a thousand years, friends, is to settle. Because you weren't meant to have sinful motives. Conflicting desires. Wrong emotions. You, friends, were created to have pure motives. Holy desires, sound emotions, and to have those things forever. And the only way that happens is through death and resurrection, which has been secured for you in Jesus Christ, which is why when Jesus gets to the scene here, when he shows up on earth saying things like this, whoever seeks to preserve his life, whoever longs to keep it, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life, whoever gives it away, He will find it. He will keep it. Does that sound familiar to us, right? That is Ecclesiastes. This is what's ultimately difficult, though, about the text in this book. It's telling me, though, to trust in Jesus with everything that I have, to live in a way that is foolish to this world. It's telling me to give away what I ultimately cannot keep in order to gain what what cannot be taken away. But I want to live in a way so as not to die. I want to take the pill. Therefore, my life is defined by keeping, by taking whatever it is that I can get to hold on to me. 
Let me define that briefly. When I say that my life is defined by taking or keeping, I'm not simply referring to what happens when my girls walk to Miss Cynthia's office and see the candy box and just go for whatever their dirty little hands can get out of that box, right? Like that kind of taking and keeping, it's part of it, but it's much deeper than this. Here's what I mean, and we've got to, we've got to get this as far as a big theme from this book for sure, but moving forward, this book has been showing us how death is the ultimate taker. It is the reason all is frustrated, all is vanity. It is the Havel that we talked about in week one. But death isn't something that just lives outside of us, friends, sort of dressed in black, holding a watch and carrying a sickle. Death is in us. Death resides in us. And the Bible calls this sin, and this is what we don't accept. It is offensive to us. And this is why Ecclesiastes, though, says over and over, there is nothing to be gained under the sun. There is nothing here to change this about us. And so our lives actually take on the pattern of death itself. We become keepers and takers of life. But until the spirit enters our lives and shows us that life is gift and teaches us to live likewise until Jesus invites us to lose our lives as we read on the pages of Luke and not preserve our lives or try to keep them. The pattern of our lives will not change. It's not just that we won't. It's not just that we will die someday. Of course, we're going to die. But we think we still have life here to live. No. It starts now. Death is not something that's happening tomorrow or down the road for you. Death is happening right now as your life is defined by the pattern of keeping and taking. And what Jesus is trying to tell you through Ecclesiastes and through his life is that, no, 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 I came to give life abundantly. And what that means is that I have come to show you that where life is found is actually giving it away which I will demonstrate to you fully on the cross. What God is doing to us, as simple as it sounds, is he is reversing this tragedy, the tragedy that we hate to hear of as we share stories of loss in Ecclesiastes. But he is making us givers again, what we were created to be in the first place, because that is what God is. For God so loved the world that he what? He gave. To say that life is gift is not just to make some sort of observation about God and who he is. It is also to observe who you are and who you were created to be. And the wisdom of Ecclesiastes moves us and it shapes us to live now as we were created to live in the first place. But also to live as a witness to an empty tomb, friends. To live as though something has fundamentally changed in this world forever. That death has been defeated and will not win out because of Jesus Christ. And if this is true, what do we have to be paralyzed from? What do we have to fear, right? This is where Kidner is so brilliant. We're looking at all this uncertainty and unpredictability of life, but we're coming in here on Sunday and worshiping a God who has defeated death. Yet that is not defining our lives. 
That is not sending us out into life to give of ourselves generously. We're just keep living to try to make sure we don't die. And Ecclesiastes is saying, look, it's already in you. It's already happening. Don't be foolish. So the question becomes as difficult as it is to not live life so as not to die. What will shape you? What or who will get your allegiance? Death and all of its keeping and taking or Jesus and death and resurrection. And this gets to the final point. How should this text shape us? If the uncertainty and unpredictability of life is to act as a springboard to generosity and a fullness of living, how does that happen? And we're not going to answer that fully this morning. Again, part one, part two. But let me leave you with two things to consider. New perspectives and new allegiances. New perspectives, huge thing that we've been talking about throughout this entire book. We can't predict the future. We don't know what will succeed or fail. Therefore, success and failure are not the measures of a full life. Giving your life away to someone or something else is. This is the new perspective that we are leaving this book with. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes wants us to see that securing success, whatever that might be for your life, is not the point of life and there are worse things than failure. So our perspectives on what life is must change. Our perspectives on what it's for must change. Life is not for trying not to die. Life is not for keeping and taking. Life is for giving yourself away to things, to people to God for his kingdom. One of the best ways, the best representations of this in a long time has come in the movie, the Pixar film Up. And if you've watched that film, and if you can imagine, you know, like the first five minutes of that film, I just weep like a baby. And what are the first five minutes of that film? It is the backstory to Carl and Ellie. And Carl and Ellie are these two kids who find each other at play and eventually... They get married and they have their whole lives in front of them. But very early on, if you remember, tragedy hits and they find out that they cannot have children and it is sad. It is, this is such an illustration of the book of Ecclesiastes. But life keeps on going, right? Life keeps on going and they set new goals. So they decide, let's make our life about adventure, about travel. And it's at this point that Ellie reveals this My Adventure book which is a huge theme for the movie. And she reveals this to Carl that will hold their best memories in life of their adventures going out and exploring this world of doing life together. And so because of that, uh, all of a sudden you begin to see this jar that shows up. And in this jar goes all their change for how they're going to save up to buy tickets to go on their adventures. And one of the adventures that they're longing to go to or they want to go to next is a place called Paradise Falls. But if you've seen the film, if you've lived life, you know what happens. As, as the jar fills up, life happens. Tires blow out. Trees fall on houses. And things have to be repaired. And the jar get, keep, get, keeps getting broken over and over and over again. And so finally, this is all catching up to me, sorry. Finally... Carl buys the tickets to Paradise Falls, but at this point in the, in the movie, they've gotten old. And they've gotten too old to actually go on the trip. And then Ellie gets sick and goes in the hospital, and then Ellie dies. And they never make it to this destination. 
And here's life's adventure book, presumably empty. Well, later Carl finds the book and thinking he had failed Ellie and having a full life, assumes that the pages are empty. And as he opens the pages, what is it that he finds? It's not filled with pictures of trips from exotic places, things that they were going to do. It's what? It's filled with pictures of them and their life, the mundane. She had been feeling it all along. Giving their lives to each other was the adventure. The first five minutes of the movie, the children's movie, by the way, tells us that that is what success is. And you ultimately don't know, or sorry, that, that, that not being able to go to Paradise Falls was not the point. And so first, look, pull away from this story for a second. We all have my adventure books, right? In our minds, right? We all have this my adventure book of life that tells us whether our lives are meaningful, whether they are successful. I think it's called Instagram today. And we go to these things and we have this idea of what this is supposed to look like in order for us to have a successful, meaningful, full life. But Ecclesiastes invites you to ask the question, what must fill its pages to make life meaningful for you? Given the fact that you cannot take or keep your life. In other words, what is this life all about for you? These are huge questions, right? We've got to land this plane somehow. Because here's what we know. You can't predict tomorrow. You don't know what will succeed or what will fail. And you ultimately don't know the things that God only knows. So what is it that will fill those pages for you? Is it money? Is it fame? Is it family? Is it marriage? Is it children? Is it a good reputation? What? And friends, what if those things do not come? Securing success was not the point for, for uh, not the point of life for Carl when he sits with his wife in the hospital. And at the same time, there are worse things than not making it to Paradise Falls. Ecclesiastes wants to change our perspective on what our my adventure book, if you will, should be. It's not some vision of success that takes you all over the world and fills your bank accounts. It's having meals. It's having good drink. It's sharing laughter and hardship, as Darwin mentioned last week. It's embracing the mundane of life as gift and living it. In other words, what the Bible wants that adventure book of yours to be filled with are pictures of you giving your life away. And isn't that what we ultimately find in the movie, right? Carl and Ellie did what? They gave their lives to each other. This is why we're weeping at the end of this five, five minutes into this movie. How do we do that, friends? How do you take that? You know that's true, but you're scared to death to do it. And it doesn't just have, it's not just in a marriage, right? It's in all of life. It's in your job. It's in your families. It's in your church. It's praying for Grant. Right? It's all of life. You can't do this unless you know somebody else has already given their life for you. And where, this is where the gospel comes into the book of Ecclesiastes. What, what we have to see is that God has already given himself fully to you. And it isn't just for you to take and hold on to. To have eternal life. The picture of that is for you to go and do likewise as well. Because there isn't just, it's not just that life is secured for you eternally. But that's how you're going to experience the fullness of life here. Mark tells us that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And I know that he has death in mind when he says this. These things come to take. But in stark contrast, Jesus tells us, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In other words, I came to give my life so that you might give yours away too. That's where abundant life is found. Seeing Jesus give his life for you changes your perspective on what life is for. And it ultimately changes how you live it. All of a sudden, because of Jesus, we can live life characterized by giving and not taking. We can risk losing our lives here for the sake of others. We do not have to tear down our barns and build bigger ones. We can sit loose with the things that he has given us because he has given us all things in himself. Now that can look like a lot of things to us personally. That can look like giving our lives and missions to third world countries where people are killed for being Christians. It's a pretty big picture of what it means to, to, to give your life away. Or it can look like forgiving someone who has wronged you. Right here. Or confessing sin to someone because you're no longer caught up with the perspective of life that is about keeping your life. That your My Adventure Book of Life, it can stop being perfect. Because if we understand what Jesus has come to do for us, whatever those books look like, blood must be thrown on every single page, friends. He's come to give you life abundantly. And that type of ransom, that type of giving to us now defines us. And so seeing Jesus give his life to us changes your perspective on what life is for. And it ultimately changes how you live it. And this gets to the last thing in this text, how it shapes our allegiances. The wisdom of Ecclesiastes should move us to a life of obedience in Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandment. That's allegiance. But we often hear, when we talk about obedience, we often hear that as, this is what I have to do to earn your favor. This is what I have to do to be a good person. This is what I have to do to be a Christian, is to obey you. Then you'll love me. But Jesus is getting at something far bigger. It's an invitation to lay down your life of taking and keeping and to move towards a life of gift and giving. It is an invitation for us to become givers again, not takers. It is an invitation to move from all that death is and to move towards life, both literally and figuratively in the person of Jesus. Why? Because the invitation of obedience is an invitation to put down my story, to put down your stories that death has corrupted and inhabit another one. And not just to do that when we go to the by and by, but to start doing that now. That is the invitation for us this morning. This is also what we will pick up next week. What is it about obedience that calls us to new life. But for now, let us consider as we enter a week of Thanksgiving, what it might actually look like for us to begin taking this life that that we have, moving away from takers and keepers, but moving into a life of giving because Jesus has given us his life for us.
Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we need your help to learn what it means to sit loose with our possessions. To know that life is not something that we have to be afraid of because you have overcome it. Lord, may you help us to be people who are characterized by being sent out into life because of its unpredictability, because of its uncertainty, because we are so certain of the love that you have for us. We need you to teach us that this morning. Would you continue to lead us this week into next week as we finish Ecclesiastes to understand what obedience might have to say about that as well? Would you do all these things in your name? Amen.